Well, it is the end of another high school football season, but there's certainly still plenty to talk about. And if it's the end of the season, you know that we're talking Lena Winslow, Panther football. And to do that, we got to bring in the man, Kyle Kempmeyer. Kyle, you ready to talk some state championships, some back-to-back-to-back state title football? Yeah, it's always a great time to talk about NUIC championship football. So let's get after it. Talking Illinois high school football. If your goals are as high as you talk about, tonight's the night you go out and just take one more step. It's a view from the West. And it starts right now! Welcome back to View from the West podcast. I'm your host, Greg Armstrong. I'm normally joined by Mitch Stormer. This week, we're calling an audible. And hey, if we're talking NUIC football, if we're talking state championships, Lena Winslow brings it home for the third year in a row. You know we're talking to the man, Kyle Kampmeyer from NUICfootball.com. Check him out on Twitter, NUICfootball.com, obviously, on Facebook as well. Kyle, you were in Champaign on Friday. You were seeing it. You were taking it all in. It's another NUIC state championship. It's another state championship for Lena Winslow. Man, it's got to be a good one for you. It's got to feel good. You know, obviously, that it's a lot of fun seeing state championships come back to Northwest Illinois. And uh, to see Lena Winslow do it and win a three-peat for just the second time in Class 1A history, the first time it's been done in Class 1A in the eight-class system, Um just speaks volumes. I mean, this was a lot of first for a lot of conference members. It was the first time we've had a team in the state championship three years in a row. It was the first time we won a state championship three years in a row. Obviously we're now to the point where we've won as a conference, six consecutive state titles, which is the most in conference history for consecutive state titles won. So a lot of things were set in place and it's Lena Winslow. that has been bringing it to us the last three years for sure. Yeah, we'll get into kind of the the bigger picture and the history of the NUIC in a few minutes because it is really impressive. But let's start with the game here. The Class 1A state championship game, Lena Winslow gets the win 30-8 to over Camp Point Central. They finished the year undefeated at 14-0. Kyle, talk me through this game and kind of what you saw here. You know, Lena Winslow had control of it the whole time. But what I thought was really interesting is they fumble on the first play of the game, and they, they recover it, but they do go three and out. Camp Point Central gets the ball back, gets the ball on offense for the first time. They get to a fourth down. They go for it with a fake punt, just overthrow an open receiver, and you start looking at, you know, the game is about those, you know, game of inches, the little things, and they couldn't fall. Camp Point Central couldn't fall on the fumble and they couldn't quite convert on that fourth down attempt on the fake punt. And from there, Lena Winslow saw that little opening to start this game, and they didn't hesitate. They really kind of ran away with this one, no pun intended. Yeah, I mean, in the eyes of this game, you know, a lot of people sit here and tell you that Central played a whale of a ball game, and they did. I mean, defensively, they did an outstanding job limiting what – Lena Winslow could do offensively. Um, like you stated, you know, you had that series where um, Lena Winslow went, actually they went four plays and out because they went for it on fourth okay. down. Yep. Good call. And, and turned it over on downs, um, which 
was not unlikely, but that fumble on that first snap of the game could have been the difference maker of that drive, to be honest. I mean, you take a look. Lena Winslow did average 4.3 yards per carry in this game. Um, and looking back, it may be their lowest average per carry throughout the entire season in a game. Uh, but with it, um, they're still able to move the ball pretty much at will. They never had to deviate from their game plan once in this entire game. And those are the things that I look at as far as a dominating performance. Yeah, the score wasn't as high as what many, including myself, may have anticipated Lena Winslow to put up. But at the same time, I also anticipated Central to put up more points as well, and they did not. So that's a credit to both teams' defenses really doing what I stated needed to happen in our preview show. They both had to be able to fill the gaps. They had to play assignment defense and not chase. That way they didn't keep cutback lanes open. And both teams did an outstanding job at doing that. The difference here in this game came down to exactly what I had mentioned as a cliche, and that was the line play. And Lena Winslow's line definitely dominated this game on both sides of the ball. Yeah, I mean, that was something we talked about over the past several weeks is that Lena Winslow was so strong up front and it was just, you know, we talk about the execution, the, the coaching staff, and, and obviously the players, the running backs get a lot of the praise for that execution, but it's, it's up front. It's, it's, they know how to block. They, know, they just, they're always so laser focused. It seems like every play it's 11 guys, man, moving in the exact same direction, doing the right thing. And that's a ton of fun to watch as just, just someone who appreciates, you know, a well-run offensive football team. I do. I, like you said, I give credit to Camp Point Central. I thought they did a good job, you know, throughout the game for the most part, limiting the big plays. But the problem is, big play or not, Lena Winslow is still effective on offense either way. We talked about that throughout the season, that they can grind it down on you or they could score in chunks and they could do it either way. And in this game, they managed to do a little bit of both, but camp point central really did play a solid game. Overall gauge dunker leads the way for the Panthers, 120 yards, three touchdowns on offense also had a big interception and man, Kyle, when you start looking down this roster, Dunker's going to be back next year. He's an impact player the last several years. And we're going to hear his name again a lot next year. Yeah, definitely uh, a big storner, uh, uh, a cornerstone for Lena Winslow as they come back in 2023. And somebody was already asking me at state, who do I put as the odds on favorite for state in 2023? And I mean, you'd be hard to remiss not putting Lena Winslow there at the current moment. Um, you know, they're, they're coming off of an undefeated JV season. They have a group of kids that just went through an experience of a lifetime going through an undefeated state championship season. They've all been building off of this momentum that's been started really since the 2017 season. And you can go back to the 2016 season in the junior year of Ravion Valentine when it started to really transcend. Because I remember stating at the end of the 2016 football season that 2017 was the year of Lena Winslow. They proved it. And then they've just never let off the gas pedal. Yeah, I mean, that that is an understatement for sure. So three state championships in a row for Lena Winslow. No 1A team has ever won four straight. So Kyle, all the accolades that we've talked about, and Lena Winslow now looks at the chance 
to really make some some not only school history, obviously, but some state history in class 1A. So a lot to look forward to. And you're right. I don't see how you can't put them as one of the odds on favorites going into it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's no doubt that when the polls come out to start the year, you know, we should see both Lena Winslow and Central right at the top of the rankings. Central does return a lot of players off this year's squad. They had a lot of young players that were uh, key impact players for them. And, and Coach Brad Dixon does a phenomenal job down there. I've been following him for quite a few years now on Twitter, paying attention to what he does very closely to the WIBC play, especially with the amount of times that we've faced the WIBC here since 2014 in the state championship game. But what I like most about what uh, Coach Dixon does is he trains the weight room. He trains the speed stuff. He's very similar to what Coach Diddick did at Forston and what Coach Zick and Janicki continue to carry on there. And he does a lot of things similar to what Coach Aaron does at Lena Winslow. And to me, that's my style of football. Obviously, Coach Dixon grew up playing against that style of football as well. So it might be part of where he gathers that from. Um, but I always say it every year we get to November that run teams win in November and it never, I mean, does it happen? Yes. But more times than not, a run team's going to come home with a state title, especially yeah, the, in the smaller classes. Yep. Absolutely. I think the more, the more years you see and the more teams you watch and, you know, especially in the last, what, probably five to 10 years when a lot of the hype is built around the spread offense and, and, and some really athletic teams that can really spread you out. But man, when you get into that cold weather and it's soggy turf and it's just, you know, the footing is not there, there is a difference. There is something to be said about solid line play with huge blocks to build these holes and you can just consistently ground, you know, grind it out on the ground. So um, yeah, you're right. You know, that that ground game, is certainly important this time of year. We've seen it play out. And yeah, Brad Dixon, I, I've been really impressed with following along with him on Twitter. Just kind of the way he leads that program has really impressed me. I was glad we got to meet up with him and talk to him last week on the podcast. And I, you know, I, I would love to follow up with him, you know, and keep those conversations going. Cause I think he's building a program reminiscent of an NUIC football team. He referenced being influenced by Coach Aaron and, you know, and by some of these teams in the NUIC. And, and you can see it play out on the field. So I really impressed with him. He, he leads a great program, great guy. And, uh, you know, they played a heck of a game. And I just think, again, you tip your cap to Lena Winslow for how well run they are. And just, I don't know how established and how focused they are every week. I mean, it's, it's something to be said when you could get a group of 16, 17 and 18 year old kids to buy in week in and week out with no distractions and this program does it this year. They certainly did it 14 and 0. So huge win for Lena Winslow. So let's, let's, let's break down a little bit of the history here. Obviously it's a historic three peat for Lena Winslow and the Northwest upstate Illini. When you start talking about things that have never been done in this conference, that's impressive. And a three peat is, is that. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, if you look back to like conference powers, the first one we ever had was Stockton. I mean, 1975, and then they followed it up in 77 and 78. So they made it three times in four years. Obviously, last year, Lena Winslow matched that stat. This year, they extend that stat. 
and now create a new standard. And that's basically what they're doing. They're creating a new standard for the next NUIC powerhouse to try to achieve. And, and there was a time when Coach Aaron first started at Lena Winslow. He talks about it all the time. Um, you know, Lena Winslow had only been to the playoffs like two, maybe three times prior to him arriving. I think it was once in 88 and then two more times in like 92, 93. And he took over in 97. He gives credit to Coach Wallace before him for trying for starting to get the Lena Winslow program up and running, which Coach Wallace did. He did a phenomenal job. It started to become a very reputable program in the early to mid-90s. And then Coach Aaron was just able to uh, take it to the next step. And it took him a while. I mean, he did make his first quarterfinal run in 2002, um, but – he got there again in 2005 against that Dakota team, got there again in 2006 against Morrison. Um, and then it was finally when he got to 2009, they were able to finally break through into that semifinal match. But one of the things that they had to get through was one of their longtime nemesis, and that was Dakota. They finally got through that dragon. And then in 2010, they broke through for the title. In 2011, Dakota stood in the way again. And then, you know, since then, they've just continued to grow. People keep buying in. The community buys in. The strength program has become even better. Um, and, and it goes with winning. When you see that teams are winning and you see what needs to be done, you continue to develop at that level. And you don't want to be the next team that lets the previous teams down. Because there is a lot of history now built up and established within Lena Winslow. There's a lot of pride there. There's a lot of alumni following along. I mean, you got alumni that were on losing record seasons for Lena Winslow in the late 80s that are so proud to be part of the Lena Winslow Panther alumna status because of what these teams are now doing for the Panthers. Yeah, and you know, along with that, you know, comes a little bit of pressure, right? But I think that that's where that's where the good teams become great and that's what's really exciting to watch about this program is that there is that pressure and it and it it kind of grows every year but that's again i think where that focus comes in and it it does it really impresses me that that this group every year it's a new group obviously you know new group of kids for the most part but that they can remain focused and that they can play at that high level it's a lot of fun and you referenced their state title in 2010. So I've told um, Coach Aaron this before. I was in, I was at their state championship game in 2010. I was covering one of the Quad City teams later in the day. And I was there for the 1A game against Tuscola. And when Lena Winslow won it, and I remember having the thought like, oh man, this is cool that like a different team from the Northwest Upstate Illini is winning a state title. And now I look back and think like, man, who knew what was about to come when that, you know, that 2010 team did what they did. Yeah. Carrie made sure to remind me yet again that this week, Lena Winslow has now doubled Dakota in football state championships. <laughs> I love the rivalry. And I, I mean, obviously there's shifts in different rivalries every year. Um, and this conference builds, great football teams and you know you heard Rick say it earlier this year I he he said it somewhere along the lines where you know the NUIC is still strong 
but it's not as strong as it once was. Um, and, and that's true. I mean, you take a look at where the NUIC was a few years ago, and literally every single week was a dogfight, even against the bottom of the doormat teams. Um, I mean, I mean, I remember my senior year, uh, Warren River Ridge was 0-9. They took two different playoff teams to the final minutes of the game, one to overtime, in fact, which was actually my team, and we yeah. made the playoffs. And you know, that's what he's talking about. You have those dog fights every year. Now we're running into those games where our the, the weaker teams in the conference do tend to be much inferior to the top teams of the conference. But if you take a look at our team's play outside of conference, it still has a remarkable record there. Yeah, well, but I will counter with, if you put Eastland Pearl City in another conference this season, they probably make the playoffs. Easily. I mean, as, especially if you put yeah. them in a comparable, if especially if you put them in a comparable conference, yep. you know, a 1A, 2A conference, you put them in that style conference, easily make the playoffs. I agree with that. Yeah. So I think that's a team that this year, it's just that they're a, they're the downside of what is such a good conference that they finish with a record that doesn't look that great on paper. But when you really look at it and break it down and see who they're playing and see who they competed against, man, that, that was, a, that was a team, you know, that, they didn't, they, they didn't get there, but they, they could in a lot of other conferences. And that's, you know, that's the good and the bad of the conference. But I think each team takes on that challenge every year. Talking about EPC, I mean, they beat two playoff teams. One was a 1A quarterfinalist. They beat Dakota, a yep. 1A quarterfinalist. Yep. They beat Chester. Yes, Chester got bounced in the first round, but they were still in the playoffs in 2A. So, I mean, their record doesn't show it, but they definitely had some talent there that could definitely be utilized to make a playoff run had they not been in the NUIC for sure. Yep. Well, Kyle, anything else to, to discuss with Lena Winslow? Otherwise we'll, uh, we'll wrap up and we'll talk about the rest of your Friday and on into the games on Saturday. No, just, you know, hats off to Lena Winslow. Once again, uh, being the staple that they are and the NUIC flag bearer at the moment, you know, it's it's unbelievable to see what they're doing. I know they catch a lot of flack because when you're winning, the haters come out. Yep. But me personally, I'm a fan of dynasties. And I saw Coach Josh Jostis from Moroa Forsyth tweet out to Coach Aaron on Twitter, dynasty and legend. And he's <laughs> not wrong. And, and to be quite honest, you know, I, I enjoy watching it because, yeah, I, it's not very often you get to see a dynasty like this come about. And, you know, at the end of the day, everything's cyclical. And, and I think that's what coach Aaron knows the most. He knows this can't last forever. And, and who's to say, just because they're potentially odds and favorite to start off at the top in 2023 does not mean that they're going to win four in a row. Next year could be the year that that team has a letdown. You never know. This year's team, though, definitely had that wits about them. They came out every game, every week, just flawless and determined. And the mistakes they made were very few. I mean, you take a look at it. They only lost. Uh, they only gave the ball away six times all year. That's, That's impressive. incredible. Yeah, yeah, that was what I was going to say. As soon as you said they didn't make many mistakes, that can show itself right in the stats right there. They did not turn the ball over hardly at all. And that's that's going to win you a lot of football games and that you're right. That's a sign of a great football team. So 
Yeah. So, yeah, hats off to Lena Winslow. Let's check out the rest of the games here. Yeah, let's move right into it. In Class 2A in the state championship game, Decatur St. Teresa gets the win 29-22 over Tri-Valley. Maybe one of the best games we saw all weekend. The game came down to the final play. Last second heave landed in the end zone, but it was incomplete. Tri-Valley comes up short. Decatur St. Teresa gets their first state championship in 43 years. So congratulations to the Bulldogs. They, they get they get the job done this year. They came up short in the semifinals a year ago. And this is a program we talked a lot about the last couple of years. And they make it to Champaign and they and they get the win here. Kyle, were you you were able to watch most of this one while you were doing the Instant Reacts podcast with us, which actually, quick side note, I encourage everyone, go out to our archives on uh, View from the West podcast, wherever you listen to this, and check out the Instant Reacts podcast. We kind of break down the Class 1A game while the 2A game is happening in real time. So, Yeah, that was actually a lot of fun. Um, and then you were like, hey, Kyle, it is Instant Reacts. You can talk about what's going on. <laughs> okay, no problem. I'll do that. <laughs> There's but, no, no rules I, in the instant reacts. We just do whatever we want to do. So I think I was more in Shawshank because I think the University of Illinois just does that for everybody. The site is just so large. Yeah. It's so awesome to be there. Nothing compares to it as far as where we go for state championship games. And I mean, we'll talk more about that later because obviously there's conversation around that too to come. But yep. um, just gazing off into the panoramic views atop memorial stadium being able to see the state farm center assembly hall i know it's what it's called <laughs> assembly hall but just taking a look up to the north side of campus as well and seeing all the structures and designs of the buildings it's just it's just an impeccable place to watch a game um and, and, you know, at times I'm sitting there listening to you and I'm just stargazing myself like, oh, my gosh, this is dreamland here. Yeah. But, uh, excellent game. Excellent game. You know, taking a look at that game, Tri-Valley definitely dominated most of the first half, um, but did not find themselves on top on the scoreboard. And it's kind of disappointing for Coach Root for how dominating his team really was. They just couldn't finish at the end zone and on the other side watching the big plays from St. Teresa that kind of were like dagger strikes each time because Tri-Valley would just sit there and pummel you, pummel you, pummel you, pummel you. And then St. Teresa would come up with a stop and all of a sudden they'd get a big play going the other way. And it was just that one big play because defensively Tri-Valley did a great job. I mean, they were fast. They were physical St. Teresa definitely had the size advantage over them a little bit. I mean, we talked about how Tri-Valley looked small on film and in person. They were definitely small, but, man, did they play football. And uh, Blake Reginald, he was every bit of the real deal. I mean, he got hurt later in the game, but uh, he definitely had a great performance, in my opinion. He did a lot of damage uh, to St. Teresa. And what an unbelievable game, unbelievable finish. Clearly one of the best for small school football, the best game of the whole day, in my opinion. But it's great to see Coach Ramsey get his uh, first state title at St. Teresa, his second title overall. It's his first since 1997 was the head coach at Central A&M. Hall of Fame coach has been there, I believe, seven times now, so it's only his second time winning it. So good job on him. And obviously Coach Roop's been there now three times since 2013. He's one and two in state championship games. So, um, you know, both, both great coaches. 
yeah, great coaches, great programs, and, you know, a great game all the way around. We'll talk a little bit more about, um, you know, Decatur St. Teresa in a little bit. But what I really want to get into here is the exciting part about the two winners we've just discussed, Decatur St. Teresa and Lena Winslow going up against each other in the next two years. They have a home-and-home regular season matchups. Man, this is really exciting stuff for both programs to just kind of step up and say, we want to challenge ourselves in the non-conference games. And this is great, great for small school football around the state to see Decatur St. Teresa and Lena Winslow defending state champions going up against each other in the regular season for the next two years. Yeah, I'm not sure what week this is happening, but for some reason, week five sticks out in my mind, which would be awesome right in the middle of the season. Um, but taking a look at what both these teams lose, um, they both lose a lot of starters. I believe both of them return three starters on both sides of the ball. So that's going to play a large impact, obviously, into the game. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, fans for St. Teresa that stated that St. Teresa may have a slight fall off next year. And it could be a larger fall off even more so because they're going to an open schedule next year because they're not in a conference. Uh, because they, they got removed from the CIC or stepped out of the CIC, whichever way you want to look at it. But uh, so they're going independent next year, developing their own schedule. So there's a chance that St. Teresa could be a team that could could be a playoff team that may not make the playoffs, depending on what kind of schedule they put together. Yeah, that's interesting to follow as well. I didn't realize that they were moving to an independent schedule, which really becomes a wild card, right? I mean, it you just never know what what your strength of schedule is going to look like when you kind of have to, you know, draw it up on the fly and figure out, you know, week by week what you're doing. I'll be interested to see what their schedule looks like um, once it's all said and done. But certainly a game against Lena Winslow is a great test. And obviously with the two defending state champions, it, it's going to have some eyeballs on it. So that's that's a ton of fun. We love that. So, yeah, definitely a huge talking point for next season. And, and it's great to get that right out here right now. You got the 1A champ versus the 2A champ in the regular season. They're both going to be, regardless of what their records are entering that game, they're both going to be the defending state champs. Yep. So there's a lot of storyline around it, and it's awesome. Absolutely. All right. In class 3A, the state championship goes to IC Catholic. They get the win 48-17 to over Williamsville. I see Catholic. We've said the name before. It's been a year or two, but this is their sixth state title. They were actually down 10 nothing in this one and then scored 48 straight. So impressive output from an impressive team. And man, I, I can't help but think that the state championship game was played in Princeton a few weeks back. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like what Coach Coons does at Williamsville, but you know, I've always, all season long, I was a little guarded about what Williamsville was, uh, especially considering you look at the trends when you're looking at ratings and everything. And, you know, they never really cleared the top seven of class 3A. That's not saying that they weren't top seven. Okay. That's just what the ratings say, not what Kyle says. Yeah. But. <laughs> so a lot of people tend to think that's what I'm saying. No, that's yeah. just what I'm posting. I'm not saying. Yep. But I did have I did put out there that I felt that the Sangamo 
while it's still a very strong conference and it's a conference that I follow religiously because it reminds me so much of the NUIC with a lot of their perennial success that they do have. At the same token, I feel that was somewhat on a downward trend and, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to argue against you that Princeton was the second best team in the state. I mean, they gave IC everything and more it took to overtime in order to get that game decided. I mean, and granted, that was a game that Coach Pearson definitely had with a 14 nothing lead. At the same point, it just goes to show you, you can never turn your back on IC because of how explosive they are. And, you know, Williamsville found that out rather quickly. I mean, they, they did a lot of great things with Jake Seaman there early in the game to keep uh, to keep uh, IC off balance and keep the ball moving. They had a 3 nothing lead at the end of one. It was somewhere in the second quarter, about early to mid-second quarter that they scored, but then IC just started popping off, and in the second half, it was just a whole nother level after that. Yeah, so junior quarterback Dennis Mandala, 275 yards, five touchdowns. That's one of those names that just feels like we've been talking about him for 10 years, and he's only a junior, so he'll be back next year. Senior running back Denzel Gibson goes for 138 yards, this was your uh, what, your first time getting eyes on IC Catholic in person. What did you think? What what stood out to you? Well, I did get to watch these guys last year in okay, person. Yep. yep. Against uh, Dupac, but this year they were definitely more solidified, and a lot of that is because they were sophomore and junior dominated last year. They had some good senior leadership with players like Jadon Sims, but at the same token, this team was definitely. Uh, more physical, more, much faster, just overall better equipped to take on this challenge for the year. And, um, you know, you take a look at who they beat, who they lost to. They did a great job. And um, it's just unbelievable talent on what you see from them. I mean, they were just so physical, so fast. They weren't big, big but they were strong, big, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you could see it up front and they just started to control every facet of the game with that strength and speed. Well, along with, uh, along with IC Catholic winning a state title comes a lot of Twitter chatter about, uh, you know, who wins in what classes and public and private. So to anyone listening, stick around. That's a tease. We'll, We'll dive into that a little bit later because I think there's, you know, there's something to be discussed, um, you know, there. But uh, we'll move right along to class 4A, the nightcap on night one on Friday night, Sacred Heart Griffin, another private school, you know, kind of segues right into it. They get the win 44 to 20 over Providence Catholic. So an all private school matchup in class 4A. Sacred Heart Griffin, six state titles under Ken Leonard. He rides off in the sunset with a state championship. And man, what an impressive effort from this Sacred Heart team. They made it to this game a year ago, and they fell short to Julia Catholic. This year, they get the job done. Ty Lott finishes 12 of 26, 214 yards passing, three touchdowns. And it, you know, just overall that, you know, this, this team was not going to be denied in, in Ken Leonard's final farewell season here. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, they 
definitely put it upon their shoulders to make sure that they were going to get it done. It was a great first half game. Obviously, SHG got out pretty quick, but Providence kept it close and respectable in the first half. But right away in the second half, you could definitely see that difference take over. Some of it coaching experience, some of it physical play. Uh, and, and I mean, there was some coaching mistakes that I felt Coach Plant's probably showed in film that he was a first-year coach compared to a 43-year coach that has a well, well-established coaching staff among him. Um, actually, I spent a lot of time just watching uh, um, Ken Leonard's mannerisms during the <laughs> gameplay yeah. because he never wore a headset. I mean, he's definitely that hands-off definitely that hands-off head coach that allows his coordinators to do all the play calls. Yep. But then he does get into the huddles and converses. He'll grab a player one by one and just have that conversation. So, I mean, he's got it orchestrated very well. And, um, you know, I've heard a lot that Derek does the same things. Um, and, and when you're at the higher levels like that and you have an abundance of coaches available to you, it only makes sense. Yeah. It seems like the sign of a good leader, right? He knows how to delegate and who to delegate to and when it's important for him to step in and kind of have that final word or have his input. But it is interesting, you, you know, in this day and age to have a head coach without a headset on and he's just kind of coaching in real time with what he sees on the field and gathering input from everyone around him. Really interesting, really impressive and, you know, you mentioned it, but Tyler Plants has done a great job at Providence Catholic here. He's 34 years old coaching against Ken Leonard, who's been coaching for 43 years. So Ken Leonard's been coaching for longer than Tyler Plants has been alive. So that, you know, I think Tyler Plants has a lot of great coaching football ahead of him. In this one, it was, it was Ken Leonard kind of showing the experience and kind of proving that that was worth a lot. Well, not just that, but I mean, let's take a look deeper. SHG's been like ranked number three in state, according to Max Preps and the Freeman ratings all year long. Um, second or third to only, what was it, Mount Carmel and Loyola Academy. So, I mean, they've been right yeah. there knocking on that door all year long. And, you know, you take a look at what they do and, yeah, you – it's just amazing. It's just amazing. There's nothing else you can say. This team was definitely equipped for destiny since the word go this year. I'm glad that they landed in 4A. That was definitely a nice fit for us on the playoff show because there was speculation that they might fall in the 3A. Thank God they did it because that would have been. A... Wow. That, that class was loaded enough as it is like. Although, yeah. although it might have meant it might have meant I see Catholic versus Sacred Heart Griffin if it's North versus South in a state championship. And I'm not going to lie, that would have been a hell of a matchup. I think it would have been, but I definitely probably would have went way of SHG for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right, well, let's get into the Saturday games. Early morning Saturday, Class 5A, Nazareth Academy gets the 45-44 win over Peoria. Now, I referenced that you know, the best game might have been Decatur, St. Teresa, and Tri-Valley. This one is a close second if it's not the actual best game of the weekend. It, this was a heck of a game as well. Nazareth Academy, the Roadrunners, only the fifth team in IHSA history to win a state title with four losses. 
They were sitting at two and four in the regular season and they make this march to a state title that credit to them. That's, that's an impressive feat. That is Tim Rackey with what? Eight state championships now under his belt. Okay. So yep. he, he won four titles with Driscoll. He's okay. There you two, go. Yep. Or that this was a seventh title. Cause he won four with Driscoll two with Nazareth and he's had two runner ups with Nazareth. So that's a guy that knew what he was getting himself into. Obviously, uh, Peoria with Malachi Washington, unbelievable playmaker. I wish I would have been able to actually watch this game, but I was watching live updates of this game as I was traveling back from Champaign. Yep. And part of the reason is because I was on a pool of uh, people from the News Gazette yeah, that did a that did a state championship pick. I mean, I was named the guest picker for the week, so I appreciate Colin Leakus for allowing me to do that. And I was the only one on the poll that had Nazareth pick to win the game. And I originally had Peoria penned down, and the only reason why I changed that pick was because of Tim Rackey. <laughs> well, yeah, I sh- I should have bragged about you to start this podcast, but let's get into this. <laughs> You're the you're the News Gazette guest picker out of Champagne, right? News Gazette out of Champagne. Yes, that's correct. Yep. So News Gazette out of Champagne. You're the guest picker out of eight or ten people picking, and you tell tell brag about your accomplishment here. I well, I just I happened to go eight and zero on the weekend. <laughs> I got them all right. I, I don't know what to. I mean, I, I love it. It's awesome, I, man. I was excited. I I remember getting to the hotel room and I'm like, Carrie, I'm four and zero. I said. I can't wait for tomorrow to start because I'd really like to finish eight. No. And uh, once I found out that I was eight, no, she goes, wow, that's really impressive. It's that's awesome. Yeah. When you, you sent me the text, you said Kai or a uh, Mitch and I, the text and I was, that, that was, that's great. Good stuff. So it was, uh, you know, back and forth game, really high powered offenses going against each other. And obviously Peoria was trailing and they kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. They would not go away. They went for two, which would have given them the lead in this one. And they came up a yard short. So, you know, we've talked about it, you know, in other situations throughout the year with Moline is the one that stands out the most. Sometimes you can't be afraid to lose. You got to go for the win. They went for it. They fall a little bit short in this one, 45, 44 Nazareth senior Zach Hayes, ended Peoria's final drive with an interception in the final minute. But um, Malachi Washington for Peoria, 48 carries, 289 yards, six touchdowns. It's a name we've been talking about or we've heard about all year long. A great effort from him, 48 carries. I mean, that's that's a workhorse. That That is doing some serious work. They come up a little bit short, but this Peoria team for me is always fun to watch just because of what what Coach Thornton has done there. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure his 48 carries surpassed Blake Reginald's carry total from the day before for the most state for the most carries in a state championship game. So I'm Mitch had listed, sure Reginald had break had broken that record. The Mitch day said, "Yeah, Mitch said it was a two way record." of 43 carries. Okay. So I'm not sure what the record is for uh class five a, but it would be interesting to find out. Maybe we can hurry up and do some, uh, do some quick, 
quick research some, here. Do some research. Yeah, yeah, no, but either way, very impressive. What'd you say he had for yardage total? 248? 289. 289. And so he had six touchdowns. So he had 3,000 yards entering the game. Wow. Yep. So 32.89 on the year. Un- unbelievable. Yeah. For sure. Yep. Great effort from him. They fall one point short. But man, th- like I said, this Peoria program has just been fun to follow. And, uh, you know, I, ho- I hope the best for them moving on. Let's get into class 6A. Kyle, if you come up with the answer, we'll, 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 we'll circle back. But uh, in class 6A, the state I championship. I got the answer. I here we go. Let's answer. go. So prior to this weekend, the 42 carries was the most across all classes by Derek Hunsinger of El Paso in 2002 and their loss to South Beloit. So the 43 carries by Reginald was the new all-class record. Wow. And then the 48 <laughs> carries by Malachi broke it. Crazy. And we've seen that before with other rushing records where it gets set one day and then broken the next day. So that's always entertaining football for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, let's move on. All right, let's get into 6A of the state championship. East St. Louis, that's a team we've heard of before. It's a team we've talked no a little bit. No way, <laughs> we've talked a little bit about. They finish, they finish the year as a state champion, getting the win 57-7. to seven. Peoria Ridge or Peoria Ridge. Yeah. Peoria Ridge Prairie Ridge. I did this last week too. I did the exact same thing. Prairie Ridge scores first. And then it was a lot of East St. Louis. Did you see the picture before the game of the, uh, of the pregame coin toss? I did. Yes. I was able to catch up to that on Twitter. That was unreal. (laughs) I mean, East St. Louis was massive compared to Prairie Ridge. And I don't know, you never know. I mean, it depends on who they send out as their captains or who they send out to the coin toss. Apparently they send out all the linemen or the big boys for East St. Louis. And it was really something to see. Like they, they had clearly had the sided size advantage in this one. And man, last year when we were talking all about East St. Louis and Kerry Grove was really able to put together an impressive game plan and get the job done this year, just not the case. Tyler Vasey, for as much, you know, as he did this year, wasn't able to do that against East St. Louis. Yeah, it was rather unfortunate. Um, I was able to get an eye test exam on Prairie Ridge a Friday night when I was getting ready to leave Memorial Stadium because they had exited the stadium about the same time I did. So I was able to walk right past them as they were getting ready to load back up on their charter buses. And, you know, that was one of the things I noticed, you know, they were definitely, uh, they had, they had good physique, definitely not a lot of size. Um, East St. Louis definitely had the size. And I mean, that picture is just a small telltale of how big everything really was in comparison. And, not surprised by the runaway lopsided score, but man, what a beatdown. Yeah. I think it was it the most lopsided game in state history. I believe I saw. I believe it is. And yeah, it's just unreal. Um, yep. Well, I, I, I can't put it into words. It's just, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, well, two more games to cover here. 7A and 8A and 7A Mount Carmel 44 to 20 over Batavia, the 14th state championship for Mount Carmel. This is the first under head coach 
former NIU standout and former Mount Carmel standout, Jordan Lynch. So good, big win for them. Quarterback Blaney Dowling, 25 for 40 passing, 262 yards and four touchdowns. Did you uh, watch a little bit of this game, Kyle? Yeah, I was able to tune in for a little bit of it. Um, I didn't get to watch the whole thing, unfortunately, but I was able to be back home in time to get some of this game in. And, you know, Mount Carmel is just unreal, as you expected. I mean, you heard about them all year. They had that win in week nine over Loyola Academy, uh, which really catapulted them to the top of Class 7A. Obviously, they're one of those teams not playing on a multiplier. So with the multiplier, they would have been in Class 8A. Loyola Academy's in their conference. They would also have been in Class 7A, but they petitioned up to play in Class 8A. So not sure when that petition took place, but clearly they both had a plan of winning state titles this year. (laughs) That is very interesting to note. Well, let's get into Class 8A. Loyola Academy, like you referenced, they get the win 13 to three over Lincoln way East. The Ramblers scored on a flea flicker on their opening possession. And they go on to win 13 to three. So the only touchdown of the game coming on the opening possession with a flea flicker. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a great game by two great coaches, coach Rob Zvonar of uh, Lincoln way East and uh, Coach John Holson of uh, Loyola Academy. You know, the, these guys have been there. They've done it. They've done it for years now. And, you know, this was a great defensive effort on both sides of the ball. Um, one of my friends is actually uh, a teacher within the Lincoln Way East school system, and she had messaged me saying that Lincoln Way East is going is going is going to take down Loyola and I said, maybe you never know. <laughs> and you know, they put up a great effort, but yeah, yeah. that flea flicker plus play uh, for the score was pretty much all that they really needed the rest of the game. And uh, the defense for both teams just really showed out in this one. I mean, that was hard to get the ball moving for either team. And it just became more of a grudge match than anything after that. So that's Loyola Academy getting the win 13 to three. Now, Kyle, if you're keeping score at home, that's six, out of eight schools that won state championships that were private schools, non-boundary schools. And one of those schools that won a state championship as a public school is East St. Louis, who also kind of gets some criticism a little bit, but that's a whole nother point. We'll get into that in a second. The, the school that the school that carried the banner for public schools here is Lena Winslow, but it's basically, (laughs) So I guess here's the thing is every this time of year, you always see it, right? These, these sort of, you know, these sort of arguments come out and these sort of the tweets, you see them on Twitter all the time this year. It really was loud and clear because like I said, six out of eight and even, even East St. Louis, we had people talking about how East St. Louis is playing in a class they shouldn't be playing in, which I don't know how you start talking about public schools that shouldn't be playing in a certain level based on their enrollment, but either way, people have a lot of issues with the private schools being, you know, winning all these state titles. And, and I get it. I, you know, Mitch and I, if you go back and listen a year ago, 
we had our thoughts on IC Catholic and we kind of went off and kind of broke down a little bit on IC Catholic and where they're located and their geography. And then the next week, Byron went out and beat them and Byron went on to win a state championship. So, you know, we didn't see IC Catholic in a state title like we all thought was assumed. And, you know, you look at, you know, you go down the list, Decatur, St. Teresa, IC Catholic, Sacred Heart Griffin, Nazareth Academy, Mount Carmel, Loyola Academy. There's your six. Every year we get these arguments. We'll just start with Kyle. What are your thoughts when you, when you see this, when you see the reactions to it, what are your thoughts on the public schools versus the private non-boundary schools? Well, in my personal opinion, um, the whole idea to separate public versus private, I think is hogwash. If you really take a look at it and break it down, only 15% of private schools consist of the 491 teams that are playoff eligible. Yep. Not a large margin. Could you imagine a team like Aquin from Freeport, Illinois, if they were still playing 11 man or Marquette from Ottawa, yep. their school mm-hmm. or Marquette down in Alton, even yep. playing against a JCA or an IC Catholic on a regular basis. There's no way it can happen. Yep. They would never, ever compete. We might as well go back to 1950 where the basketball state championships were everybody pulled together and Cinderella was the school of 200 kids that beat the school of 1500 kids by a miracle. Yeah. And it happened one time, right? That, that, you right. know, that's the Hoosier story that happened once. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's not going to happen. And, you know, while a lot of people are critical on the IHSA, you know, and at times I have been too. Um, when you take a look at the old six class system, only 38% of teams made the playoffs back then. And there were a lot of Catholic teams that were winning state championships back then or private schools, I should say non-boundary. Yep. I, you move into the new eight class system. It kind of spread it out a little bit. And part of the purpose of it was to increase the ability to have more teams actually in the playoffs. Because you look at every sport across IHSA, every team's in the playoffs, except for football. And we only had 38% going to the playoffs. And it was lower than that back in the five-class system. So now you got 48% of the teams there. Now we're in an era where eight-man football starting to come in. So that percentage of teams is actually growing a little bit to where it's now 54% of the teams are now in the playoffs because we've had enough teams fall out. They're no longer playoff eligible. We've had the CPL, the Chicago Public League, change who makes the playoffs out of their divisions. And I don't think that you change to separate the publics from the privates. I just think it would take everything away from what high school football is. You went to a private school. Mm -hmm. I went to a public school. Do I feel any different about playing you the way I would have played Aquin, the way I would have played Sterling Newman Catholic? No, I don't. 
because at the end of the day, whether Aquin or Newman were good, the, 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 the ability to be able to beat them was awesome. Yep. And I would never take that away. And if you break down history even further in the eight-man classes, there's only been one other year where privates have won more state championships than publics in a state championship year in the eight-man system, and that was in 2004, where privates won five of eight. This year is primarily an anomaly because of COVID. We've had so many schools not have a multiplier. I mean, you take a look at it. Your 3A champ was IC Catholic. They would have stayed 3A. Yep. St. Teresa is 2A. They did. They were one of the schools that did. They were one of the four schools that actually had a multiplier. 4A was SHG, who would easily be in 5A. So if they were moved to 5A, now you don't have the same 5A state champ. Or you at least lose one of them. Yeah. Now, that's not saying that Providence doesn't make it. But if Providence also has the multiplier, they're in 5A or possibly 6A. Yeah. So you start getting it. I mean, and then go up to 7A. Mount Carmel would be in 8A if they had the multiplier like they should have had assessed. So my argument against it, while there is no real perfect solution to any of this, the best solution is to have the multiplier. It was instated for a reason. It was to help level the playing field. I got in an argument today on Twitter about, well, it punishes them. Actually, the multiplier rule now in the state of Illinois is a lot more lenient than what it used to be when it first got implemented. Yep. Because now you have to win three playoff games in two consecutive years within that playoff window in order to get multiplied. So if you won two games this year, but you win two games next year, you're not getting multiplied for 2024. You're not going to see that until 2025 because it's got to go in a two-year rotation now. So it just becomes that much easier for the privates to stay lower. You know, one of my arguments was Aurora Christian. We, we've seen them in the 2008 4A state championship game. We saw them win back-to-back state titles in 2011 and 2012 in 3A. They've been in Class 1A since 2017. And in 2018, or maybe it was 2018. Either way, 2018, they were picked to be the team to beat in Class 1A because 3A school coming down to 1A, same thing we heard about St. Teresa back in 2016 as well. 3A school coming down to 1A. And what happens? They meet up with an NUIC team that, Pounds them away. Yep. Now that's small school football. Obviously, in the bigger schools, there's a much bigger parameter there. And it's easy to state that privates have a bit of an advantage. I think it was Coach Jordan Litch from Mount Carmel clearly stated that, yeah, we recruit kids. We have to recruit kids. We're a private school. We have nothing that brings in kids without recruitment of some sort. Yeah. So you have to have something there. Yeah. I think that's a huge portion of this argument that a lot of people listening to this don't want to hear is that it's, it's a fact that public schools have 
regardless of bigger, smaller, they have a designated area where people that live in that area go to that high school. Now, they can certainly choose to go somewhere else if there's another option nearby, but for the most part, they're going to that school, depending on where you're located. On the flip side, no one has to go to that non-boundary school. And now I get it. Everybody's yelling at their, you know, every public school defender is yelling at me right now as I'm saying this, but let's look at one of the best dynasties the state of Illinois ever saw in Addison Driscoll. Can somebody tell me what Addison Driscoll High School is doing right now? They don't exist anymore. They don't exist anymore because the enrollment dried up and they couldn't afford to keep going on. So I know nobody feels sorry for them. I'm not asking you to feel sorry for them. What I'm pointing out is, is that their success did not make any difference at the bottom line. They could not continue as a school, so the diocese shut them down. That's a Catholic school. Not all of them are Catholic schools, but a non-boundary school that existed, had a ton of success, and it did not make any difference. And now that opened the door for Lombard Montini several years after that. That then also, I believe, opened the door for IC Catholic. I think that's where those schools stepped in. And those kids were no longer looking at Addison Driscoll as an option because it didn't exist. They were going to these schools. That's where I believe you've seen the uprise in those schools. I think overall in the state of Illinois, the biggest problem with public versus private school lies in three, four, five A. Would you agree that that's where you get schools out of Elmhurst and you get schools out of big metro areas that are competing against schools from? Williamsville, from Princeton, from Dupec, or from Durand and Pecatonica, right? That's where I feel like the biggest issue is. And that's where it needs to be a multiplier. You need to enforce a multiplier. And I, I'm not sure I agree with the waiver. I, I don't want to punish a school for being non-boundary, but also there are advantages regardless of where you're located. So I will say that I'm not sure I've ever really agreed with the waiver being in place. I think at end of the day, you have to emphasize the multiplier. And Kyle, can you kind of backtrack a little bit and explain where the IHSA kind of dropped the ball here in our current scenario is that COVID year, they left that in play in their two-year system when we didn't even have a football season. Yeah, so what IHSA did as we were getting ready to enter the new enrollment period for what would become the 2021 and 2022 football seasons, that enrollment period is the averages of the 2019 and 2020 seasons. So for the playoffs, there was no 2020 playoff season. So all they could do as far as multipliers go by is take the three wins that private schools would have attained just in that 2019 school year. Everybody else dropped the success factor because there was no success factor available and they dropped the multiplier. So only four schools, and that would have been the four schools that either made the semifinals and or state championship game in 2019 were the only ones that received the multiplier. Yeah. And that's, that's where they dropped the ball is that, 2020 wasn't properly addressed when you're talking about this two-year increment and it, it threw everything off and it, and you could see it kind of play out here, you know, but another thing I want to point out is that 
you know, everybody is mad about, not everybody, shouldn't say everybody, I should clarify. There are a lot of people you see on Twitter that are mad about six out of eight being private schools, non-boundary schools winning. But you look at a school like Decatur St. Teresa, they haven't won a state championship in 43 years. Now, if a public school does something like that, that's, you know, that's historic and everybody loves it. And it's such a great story for their community. But now it happens at Decatur St. Teresa and there's a certain sector of Twitter that they can't stand it and it just drives them nuts. And I, I don't know. I don't agree with that either. I don't either because, you know, St. Teresa, especially since Coach Ramsey's arrived there, has done a phenomenal job of building that program back to a level of attainable success. When Coach Tim Burley was there, he was there. He did good. He made some good quarterfinal runs there, but could never get over the top. Coach Ramsey gets there in his first year. He takes him to the state championship game for the first time, for the first time since 1986. So this year in 2022 was only their third trip to state since 1986 and they lost in 86 in 2016 so yeah like you said it's the first time that they won in 43 years and it was a great football game it's not like they ran away with it like they did in 78 and 79 blowing everybody out the door yeah and and, i mean even their 75 team was just unbelievable i don't think that 75 team gave up a single point in the playoffs and that was back when they were still dominating in class two a before multipliers ever were a thing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I think really when you take a look at why multipliers started coming into play here is you got to take a look at the eighties with Marion central Catholic Marion won four state titles in like a six year run. And they were playing three, a four, a five, a schools on a regular, but they were playing in the two a playoffs. Yep. And, you take a look. We had some great teams in the NU. Well, it was the NWIC back then, but we had some great teams back then that lost. We had Lanark losing in the semifinals to Marion. A very good polo team lost to uh, Marion. Stockton, probably one of the best teams we've ever had in 1987, lost to Marion in the quarter or in the semifinals. So they're they were they were a stopgap for a lot of true small schools to have that ability to have some success. And, you know, you take a look at even Sterling Newman. They started to come to prominence in that 1989 season. That was like Coach Poposi's first, second year there, something like that. But it was their first time to the playoffs. He gets them to the quarterfinals where they lose to Orangeville in a very close game. But then the very next year, they win state. And then they're there in 93 and 94. And, and, and then they're there again in 98 and, and they're all in class 1A. And then all of a sudden the multiplier hits and now they're in 2A and or 3A. And guess what? Newman still wins. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know? But they don't they don't win at a large margin like we see the Joliet Catholics, the Providence Catholics, the Loyola Academies, the Mount Carmels. Those are historic programs that have been able to stand the test of time. And a lot of it came back in an era before multipliers existed. So has the multiplier leveled the playing field a bit? Yeah, it really has. I agree with you. I don't think they should have a waiver. If they do have a waiver, make it a six-year waiver where it once was. 
There you go. You know, yep. When they first came with the, when they first put the waiver rule in, it was six years of no playoffs. And then you got waived to play at your enrollment. Sure. Yep. Then they changed it to four years and then they changed it to what we're at now. Yeah. And I think that's where the problem lies is at the end of the day, I don't think that we need to separate classes between public and non-boundary. I think the issue has come in where the waiver is, is, is we're too quick to give the waiver out and it allows these schools to slip in and have a ton of success at a level that, you know, where they're, they are, they do have a distinct advantage. And I think that's, that's where the problem lies. And, you know, it, it does, I will admit it, it does drive. I think I'm in a unique perspective where I grew up, went to a pub, a private school, a non-boundary school, but at the same time, it's an extremely small school at the time. It was a little bigger. Now it is literally one of the smallest schools playing 11 man football. This the second smallest. So I'm in a unique perspective where I don't think it's any shock to anybody. I love small school football, regardless of public, private, whatever it is. I love small school football. I want to see our public schools win just as much as I want to see Marquette win it. I don't see any difference, right? Like if, if Marquette, if Marquette cheated that well, then they would have beaten Forrest in those couple of years. They would have beaten Stark County in the semifinals, you know, like that's, that's where my, at the end of the day, like I know one A is a little different beast than some of the uh, bigger levels. I think the bigger advantage comes in when you start talking about IC Catholic in the area they draw from. And, you know, even Nazareth Academy going up against Peoria team, getting into the, you know, the bigger classes. They're, they're only the fifth team in IHSA history to win a state title with four losses. Now, credit to them. They play a tough schedule, right? And they were able to make it here to a 5A state championship game against Peoria. I get, Kyle, what are your thoughts on if the IHSA were ever, ever to go back to a model where maybe non-boundary schools were subject to their enrollment was based on maybe an average of who they play. So I see Catholic doesn't necessarily fall down a class or two when they're playing a five, a schedule. I know that I've brought that up a while back ago as a suggestion. Um, but the more I think about that route, while it seemed with good intent at the time, I think that would be bad because it's that much easier for a superpower like an IC Catholic to go play a bunch of nine winless teams that are in class one a, and now they're in the class one, a playoffs and they run okay. through everybody. Yeah, no, that's fair. So they're just padding stats to win a state championship. So that's, yeah. that, that's where you could put the naysayer on that. But what that alludes to is the push for districts and in districts, the whole yeah. idea behind that would be have would to have the classifications predetermined before the season kicks off. Yeah. So you already know what class everybody's in before the start of the season. Okay. Now, obviously you, you host and run a website called NUICfootball.com based on a conference. What are your thoughts on districts? I am not 
for districts. I am very pro-conference. And the reason is because if you go away from conferences, while districts has some of the proposals had put together ideas of playing a seven-district season, and then you could have two non-conference or non-district games against whoever you wanted to schedule, that wouldn't count against you. While that idea tends to lead for you to keep your conference rivals intact, at the same time, it becomes more of a free-for-all. Because what if your rival is tired of getting beat by you and they don't want to play you anymore? Um, So I think it's got a little bit of discredit discredit to me in my mindset there. Um, I'm more for the conference. I like seeing conference championships. Obviously, if we went to districts, you know, I think we were like district 17 or something like that. I can't remember what the what the numbers were, but no, we were district two up here. That's what it was. Um, I guess I'd have to change the website to district two football.com. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I mean, obviously, we got a brand and I like the brand. And obviously, like I said, I'm a huge uh, believer in conference play because you get to keep the travel down to a minimum. I mean, you think about districts and the purpose of it is to cut travel. While the idea sounds great, you still have a lot of teams, especially in the 2A, 3A, and 4A ranks that are going to make a lot of travel plans. And then you look at 6A and 7A, you got that whole east side of st louis there are a bunch of 5a through 8a schools right in there with collinsville bellevilles while they might have a good little district there every one of those schools hates playing east st louis already yeah yeah and now you're gonna wrap them up into potentially a district option I mean, granted, those schools are two classes above. Most of those schools are 7A where East St. Louis traditionally falls 5A. So East St. Louis would go to 5A. But there's nothing in districts that says you can't petition to play up. You just can't go down. Yep. So, and right now, the whole reason why East St. Louis didn't petition up to 7A is because their conference told them that they can no longer play in 7A for the opportunity to get more teams further into the playoffs. So their own conference has kind of put handcuffs on what East St. Louis can and can't do in order to remain in the conference. Yet we watch them go to Georgia and Ohio and play non-conference games out of state against higher tier competition. Yeah. And while they get losses, you got to look at where those losses come from. And then you're like, Oh, wow. That's amazing. And like you stated before, East St. Louis is a public school that kind of acts like a private school. I mean, yeah. An, argu- an argument I had earlier today was with a kid from Peoria. Goes, He went to Peoria, Notre Dame. And his argument was, IHSA always comes calling every year, every year, every year, asking for rosters and age groups from kindergarten up. And every year they see the same thing. No recruiting being done. The kids that enter in kindergarten graduating as seniors from the same school or sure. district that feeds the schools. Sure. And to be quite honest, I do think you see a lot of that until you get to the suburbs. Yeah. And I think that you start to see where 
money dictates some of that too. If I get enough money, I can go here or there, you know, on state financial aid. Because there is financial aid grants available for you to attend these private schools. Um, Yeah, two points real quick that I think you bring up there that I wanted to bring up before we wrap this all up. And I think this is a great conversation. And I think we could do this again and keep talking about it based on feedback that we'll inevitably hear, you know. But I think the two things to think about there is that let's not be blind to the fact that travel in youth sports is above and beyond anything we've ever seen in years past, right? In the last 10 years, at least it's exploded. Kids at a young age before high school are traveling all over the place to play athletics, whether it's football, baseball, basketball. So let's not be naive to the fact that there are kids that are probably, like you said, within the suburbs where there's a more populated area and there's more high schools to be found. They're going to the place that is the best option for them. They're finding a way to get to that school that can give them the best option. Now it's obviously easier when it's a non-boundary school, but it's still happening. And I think the other important factor here is, and the state of Iowa has actually addressed it in recent years, that depending on your school district, and the money within your school district, that depends on a lot of your success, right? That it's harder to win in a school that doesn't have a lot of money to support your athletic program. And that, that that's something that nobody, I don't know, people kind of gloss over, right? That there's plenty of suburban public schools that win a lot and, and schools around all over the place that win a lot because they have a lot of money in their school district. And then on the flip side, there's a lot of programs that struggle because they're in the wrong areas or they just don't have the resources and the money available to become successful. I don't know. There's a lot to be said on both sides of that. Yeah, I mean, most definitely. I mean, take a look at Byron, for instance. They're, what, 30 minutes away from me, if that. Yep. They They have nuclear power plant money that helps with the school district. Everybody knows that it's been going around for decades now. Great facilities, probably top notch facilities in this area for class one, a to three a. Yep. But then I take a look at schools like Moreau Forsyth, take a look at their facilities, take a look at Williamsville, smaller public schools that have, even better facilities than what Byron has, and they don't have nuke plant money. Yeah. Where's that coming from? They have people that want to, one, have good educational experience. Two, obviously there's people that support what's going on. They know that it takes a certain level of effort from boosters, parents, family members, et cetera, to help drive that. It takes fundraisers to do it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that have to generate money to flow into these things in order to provide better weight facilities, better training yep. facilities, everything, uniforms, yeah. you, you name it, you know, and while everybody will say, well, uniforms don't matter much. Well, they may oh, not Mitch, matter. Mitch much. would never say that. Mitch would never they may say not that. matter much, but there is truth behind the words 
look good, play good. Yep. Yep. Uh, so what's funny is the class or the uh, classroom that I took freshman year religion at Marquette Academy uh, has now been the, the wall on the back end has been opened up and there are two classrooms that are combined right outside the gym to be the weight room now. So, you know, when I was studying religion at Marquette, that's now the, that's now the weight room right outside the gym. So, so I mean, so at Dakota, our weight room is still the same weight room that we carried cinder blocks after football practice my sophomore year. And it's still the same square box. <laughs> same with the same with the wrestling room. Nothing has changed except that we do have a little bit more equipment in there now than what we used to have. So but you literally that, built everything it. Looks the same. You built it brick by brick. Yeah. In a way that was kind of the, that was <laughs> yeah. kind of the demeanor. Um, yeah. Yeah. Coach Lano, after every practice, part of our conditioning was to go over to the construction site and move cinder blocks for the, for the bricklayers the next day, man, that's smart coach. That's great. Yeah. That's great stuff. And I think, you know, to wrap up the, you know, the last part of this discussion, I think at the end of the day, football's expensive, right? Football's an expensive sport. So it does take people to be able to, a lot of times, facilitate, you know, to give money to the program. And, it, and it's just not available everywhere. There are just certain areas where people don't have the money they would love to. There are people around the state that would love to give money to support their son playing football or their daughter doing whatever sport, but it's just, they don't have the money. They don't have the resources to do it. And it's just, I don't know. I think that's sometimes a hidden factor in all this too. And, you know, we don't think about that or we don't, you know, we don't talk about that part of it, but it is the truth. Yeah. I mean, I coach at Dakota. I would love to throw $5,000 into my baseball budget and just have it sitting there. Absolutely. And if I, yeah. and if I had that cash available to me, I probably would do it, but I don't. Yeah. And like you said, you know, there's a lot of donors that want to donate that may be only able to donate 20 bucks, you know, and I try to tell people every little bit helps because, you know, it all adds up pretty quick in yeah. the end, but you have to have that support. If you don't have that support, you're not going to get that cash flow in there. That cash flow is not there. Now you're trying to balance budgets from other places, whether you're pulling from a football account that generates more revenue or a basketball account that generates more revenue. Either way, you're pulling from somebody else in order to make just minimal meets in the middle type of things. Yeah. I think basically what, what I'm trying to say in this, in this discussion is that there are public schools that really struggle to make ends meet and to make, you know, their program, whatever it is, whatever sport viable. And on the flip side, there are plenty of private schools that struggle with enrollment and getting kids in the door to play football or to play whatever sport it is. And on either end, I think sometimes those are forgotten about, right? The bad private schools, nobody cares. Right. And on the, on the bad public schools if it's a bad program then no nobody thinks about that one either you know it's just there are programs that are forgotten for various reasons and i just i think that's it's not always one way or the other totally agree i mean and then you you take a look at that i absolutely agree some of them are better in soccer yep some of them are better in baseball some of them are better in basketball take a look at chicago for instance we we, we clown on the chicago public league all the time 
Why? Because they're not very good at football. Yep. Why, why is that? They don't have a lot of resources, but come basketball season. Yep. They have a ton of resources. Yes. Because they have dominating that yeah. state. Yep. They are. Yep. Because they and, have a, they have the facilities and they have the culture built in. Right. And they have the support. And yeah. So I think it, I think it just depends on, there's a, so many more factors than just non-boundary schools win all the time. There's so many more factors than that. And I think that a lot of times, a lot of it is forgotten in these, you know, in these discussions. So. Well, I think what a lot of people forget is that private schools may have to recruit in order to get kids in their doors. Yep. Whether it be just putting up signs around town, like I've seen in Elmhurst, come to IC Catholic. We have our open enrollment time at this date and this time at this location. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same token, we do see public schools recruit. There's just a lot softer ways around public schools recruiting than there are for private schools. Yeah. Especially now in the day and age of travel, you know, and kids are traveling to communities and they're talking to each other. And, you know, by the time they're in seventh or eighth grade, they've, they've met people from probably several local communities and yes, right. You're right. And that, and that's where I agree with you hundred percent travel ball has changed the perception of how we do a lot of things today. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's been said for a long time that was going to be the killer of youth sports. And at some degree, I think it is because you take a look at town ball teams. How many town yep. ball teams are starting to die up now? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. I mean, I re- Freeport's my closest big town. Yep. And back in the day, there used to be 32 teams just in one league. Wow. In town ball yeah. for baseball. Yeah. They're lucky to get four now. Yeah. So that's a huge difference. And why is that? Because all these kids now go out. They either, A, don't go out for baseball anymore because, you know, youth in America, whatever reason, I, I don't want to say that they're lazy. I think their parents are lazy and their parents don't want to push them to participate in things because they feel it's a waste of their time. Well, I think a bigger part of it is it, this is going, this will go way down a rabbit hole, but <laughs> that at a younger age, it's expected that you're either good at this sport or you don't play. Right. Yeah. There is no, there is no just go out and try it and have fun anymore. Like, yeah, that's, if you're not good at it, forget it, find another sport. One, unfortunately I've seen some coaches like that too. You know, I, I ran into a coach that was coaching fifth grade boys or girls or both or whatever. And and they, their, their motto was, well, if they're not going to play now, they're not going to play in five years from now. It's like, how do you know? Yeah, that, that kid's not even developed yet. They still got five years before they're just a sophomore at that. Yeah, they could become your best player. Well, you know, you can just take a look and know who's going to be athletic or not. That may be Man. true right now, but it doesn't mean that they can't develop. I mean, well, it's also it, sad from a participation standpoint, right? That, yeah, that the, you're just I mean, losing out on. Yeah, develop so. development's the biggest key. And that's, in my opinion, what needs to be pushed. You know, travel teams are fun to be on. I've coached travel ball, but at the same time, I agree with development. I don't go to travel ball tournaments to put the best team together to see what we can do. I go to travel ball teams, the tournaments to put my kids against better competition so they can see where they stack up against other kids at the same age group as them. 
And that's what I do it for. That way they know what they need to get better at so we can start seeing development and improvement upon that. And that's where it needs to go. But unfortunately, we got too many coaches, even at the youth levels, they're all about chasing trophies. That When did chasing trophies become the goal? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And who's that for sports? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who's that for? what do you want to, what do you want to do? Wear a cheap ass ring because you <laughs> won a 12 U tournament. Congratulations, yeah. man. Yeah. But. Oh, great, great conversation. I love it. Okay. Kyle, the last question on the docket here tonight, we, we ended up going way longer than, of course, we always go way longer than I expect we will, but that's, Hey, that's kind of the beauty of it. So let's wrap up talking about, this was a state championship weekend in Champaign. First of all, tell me about being in Champaign and then we'll move on because there's potential that this may be it. This may be the, uh, the last time in Champaign for a while. So. Yeah. I mean, I'll keep it short. Obviously you get a lot of awe when you get to Champaign. I mean, you got the state university there. It's the largest uh, stadium in the state of Illinois, uh, which is, remarkable considering that it is a college university. I mean, it's, it's bigger than soldier field. Um, you take a look at the surroundings, all of Illinois athletic complexes are all right next to each other. You got the football field, you got the basketball stadium, you got the baseball and softball diamonds all right in close vicinity to each other. Just immaculate setting, you know, you start the day, you go over to the state farm center, you go to the ticket office, you grab your passes, you head right over to the media parking lot like you're on cloud nine and some special express, get parked right next door to the stadium. And then you, you go in the first door, you get there and the elevator's right there and the tunnel's right there. So, I mean, the minute you walk in, you can either go right to the tunnel and see the field right now, or you can go to the elevator and go straight up to the press box. And, um, you know, one of the things I, I will be putting out here later this week or possibly weekend is our uh, behind the scenes look of what state championship looks like in Champaign because of what we're about to discuss, the object of it no longer being a state championship site. And um, it's just awesome. The, I mean, top level feel, I you know, you hear all the time, Illinois can't recruit this. Illinois can't recruit that. They don't have the facilities. I don't know if I were a D1 football player right now and Illinois came calling, I'd probably say, yeah, sign me up because I've seen their facilities firsthand. I've been down their campus. Everything feels like home to me. I like the campus, the way it's separated from the rest of the town. The facilities are top notch. Illinois has done a tremendous job adding on and building onto their facilities. And it's just, it's, it's awesome. The place is awesome. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've been, I've always been impressed when I go there and it, it, yeah, it has the look and the feel of big time college football. I don't know all jokes aside that Illinois hasn't always played big time college football, but it looks that way, right? It, it does feel like a big 10. It is a big 10 school feels like a big 10 school and it, it is, it is the state university. So that makes a difference. And I hearing it directly from coach Aaron kind of spoke to me like, okay, it does resonate with them more maybe than Northern Illinois does or puts practically looking ahead, maybe more than Illinois state does. My criticism would be, man, it just, it's so big. Like you talked about, it's big, 
It's so big. Is it too big? Now, the, you know, 7, 8A, they, they fill it up. And I guess I should say maybe 6, 7, 8A, they fill it up. But I don't know. On that, on that Friday with 1 through 4A, I've been there on the sideline and I've watched it on TV. And in both cases, it does feel a little hollow, a little empty. Yeah, definitely agree. I mean, and, you know, being up in the press box, even just in comparison in Champaign, you're on the eighth floor. Yeah. So you're way up there. Yeah. Whereas in NIU, you're like on the fourth or fifth floor just to give you relevance. I mean, you're almost twice as high. And, um, you know, seeing the smaller venues and I've said this forever. At, on a fan's standpoint, the smaller venues are great because the crowd noise is just that much louder. The decibels are higher, and it just gives you more of that high school-type feel. Whereas playing in Illinois at Champaign, like you said, it's very cavernous when you look at a stadium that seats 75,000 people and you may have 3,000 people in it. <laughs> so yeah. it definitely does not spread out as much as you would think. On top of that, I think that in the past, seeing games at NIU, and with a lot of Northern teams being much closer to NIU, you definitely get a lot more traffic going to and from NIU for that yep. purpose. And Did talking you think, to a lot of- sorry, I'll stop you real quick. Did you think, were there more Lena Winslow fans there last year than there were this year? I felt like there was more there last year than this year. I think yeah. there was a lot that stayed home to watch it on TV because they just didn't want to make the trip. And it's not a bad trip. It really isn't. It's only three hours. Yeah. If the project, if one of the projected sites gets it, it's only 45 minutes less. And that would be ISU at Illinois state. Yep. So it's, I don't know. And one of the arguments was, well, I like it at ISU because it's more central. So I did a quick thing, a quick test. I'm like, well, yeah, let's take the most northern city and the most southern city and see the distance between there to Champaign. And the two cities I used were Rockford and Carbondale. And it was almost split down the middle by going to Champaign. So yeah. the only schools that truly benefit to being closer to Champaign are the Eastern side state schools. I'll say that everybody across the rest of the States all going at least 200 miles or less to go to Champaign. Yeah. So I think that's part of the reason why Champaign was picked to be the university of Illinois. Um, <laughs> yeah. To be quite honest, because yeah. Illinois state, while it is centrally located in the middle of the state, it is on the Northern half of the state. So it still makes it a lot easier for a lot of Northern schools to get there very quickly. Um, There's some crazy story about Ottawa, Illinois, my hometown that I grew up in, that they had the chance to either have the University of Illinois or have like an appellate court. And apparently, I don't know, somebody have to look it up. Somebody much smarter than me and a historian that some judge chose to have the court in Ottawa and then the the university would go to Champaign or some other city and end up being Champaign. I don't know. I don't know what the validity of that story is. I heard it when I was a little kid. So anyway, there was a chance that 
Ottawa could have been, you know. So I heard the same thing. I've heard the same thing about Jacksonville, home to Illinois College. Oh, there you go. Okay. Which is the first founded college in the state of Illinois. It was founded in 1829. Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll have to get more research on this. Yeah. They, I know that they wanted to become the University of Illinois because a lot of governors that worked in or in Springfield at the time resided in Jacksonville. So there was a lot of monetary pull there, but Champaign lost it or won it. I mean, yeah. 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 So, okay. So the only thing official we know is that University of Illinois has put in a bid to host every other year for the next, what, five years? Uh, it would be for the next three years. Okay, they did so, every. They wanted so this to do contract every- is this, Yeah, this contract's a six-year contract. Okay. And they want to do every other And they year. want to do three. Yeah. And other than that, Kyle, unless you heard anything when you were in Champaign, there's no other proposals that have been made public. So we don't know that Illinois State has put in a bid. We don't know that Northern Illinois has put in a bid. And then those are the front runners. And other than that, I think that's kind of the only ones that really fit the criteria. I think we're pretty sure that Illinois State definitely put in a bid. Um, obviously, this has been the state's best kept secret because uh, yeah. nobody in Shan- I mean, I asked multiple people from across the state about it. Nobody had anything. Yeah. Um, but at the same token, you know, I, I do feel that uh, Illinois State realized what revenue they lost when they gave it up back in 1998 mm-hmm. and went down to Champaign that year. And um, since then, you know, they've done a lot of major reconstruction of the stadium. Uh, a lot of people enjoyed Bloomington. So I think statewide, more people would be appealed. It'd be more appealing for them to go to state being in Bloomington rather than switching between DeKalb and Champaign. Me personally, you know, I already told you, I love Champaign. Um, it's awesome. There, Everything's just better in Champaign. <laughs> I I like champagne. Um I also didn't I I also enjoyed going to DeKalb. I felt like DeKalb was a great experience. I felt like you like we've talked about with the fans being a little closer. Um I never have been to a state championship game in in Bloomington, in Bloomington Normal at Illinois State, but I have been to college games there since they've renovated. And it is really nice. They've done a really great job. It would be, I think, a better press box media experience than what Northern Illinois is. The problem with DeKalb is that it's a smaller venue, and I think they have the modern facility, the practice facility on the end of the end zone, but their actual press box is pretty outdated. So that that does become an issue. I've heard people talk about that, that it's, it's not as nice. I think Illinois state would be able to counteract that a little bit and have a nicer facility press box wise. And it would also be a pretty good game day experience with the size of that venue. I do agree though. There's something to be said about playing at the state university playing at the big 10 school. Yeah. You would miss a little bit on that if they made the move, but I'm just really curious to see how this works out. I I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, all you want to do is play on the turf at a state championship game and say you did it. Yep. And I have never taken in a game at Hancock. 
Um, I've watched several games at Hancock via TV uh, back in the early to late nineties. Yep. yep. Um, but yeah, never, never really paid attention much to Hancock stadium. I mean, the most notable games I remember are the 93 ice bowl that uh, Harden Calhoun beat Sterling Newman in. Okay. Yep. And then, and then the 1997 game that Galena beat Stark County. And those are the two that really yep. stand out to me the most, probably because those were the two games that I remember watching the most. And of course, you know, I remember watching like coach Ramsey central A&M Raiders from 95 to 97 when they went three years in a row. I remember watching the Mount Carmel's and the Providence Catholics. <laughs> and I don't, and I don't know why, but I gravitated to those bigger school games back then, but now it's all small school. I still enjoy watching the big schools, but I think the small schools to me are just a lot more fun. Yep. And um, I agree going to ISU, if it does happen to go there, which there is a lot of speculation that that's where it's going to land. Um, I think it will, I think it will be good. Um, I agree that the press box at NIU is definitely way outdated. Uh, it does create a lot of issues, especially if you're uh, handicap accessibility, things like that, because of the corridors there, it's very tight. It's very narrow. Yep. It's not very welcoming where, you know, you go to U of I and the aisles are wide and the steps are there. They have a whole handicap accessible uh, seating arrangement. And so they have all of the amenities, all of the accommodations, and, and you would expect that out of a bigger school. And it goes back to what school has more money. Uh, I mean, obviously Illinois has a lot more money to invest mm -hmm. than what NIU has, but you know, I, I do think it's going to go to ISU. I just wish we knew, I think, December 19th is that board meeting. I can't remember. Okay. But uh, I, if I remember something, December 19th just sticks out in my head for some reason. Yeah. Um, I think, is there any chance that they split it up? Do you think? I asked Katie Hassan that question, the IHSA, you know, board president month, you know, before the season started. And she said that had not been discussed, that had never been brought up. They do split it up for other state championships. I think baseball does Peoria, smaller schools, and Joliet for the bigger schools. So I don't think that's a bad option necessarily either if you could figure out the right venues. Well, the problem with that is they once did that back a long time ago. The smaller schools were at ISU and the bigger schools were at Northwestern because a lot of the bigger schools were coming out of okay. the Chicagoland area. And the problem with it is because they all fall on the same weekend, transporting all the TV cameras, all okay. the crews, all yeah. that stuff was more of a problem than anything. Whereas you look at these other sports, their state championship games for 1A and 2A are one weekend, followed by the following weekend for 3A and 4A, which gives them the opportunity to split it up like that because they, they're going to travel for the week anyway. Um, whereas football, it's all in one weekend. So to me, it only makes sense to keep it at one location. I don't think they're going to split it up one site to another site. Yeah. Yep. The one other thing that came up that I had not thought about, um, Kyle neighbors talked about it on Friday night drive and his, um, article. Actually, he discussed all the same stuff we've been discussing. He did private versus public and also discussed the state location he brought up um toyota park 
in um, Bridgeview, which is the home of Chicago Fire, the soccer, MLS soccer team, or it was, I believe it still is, um, as a possible venue as well. That might be a location for bigger schools. I don't think it would work for smaller schools because you start talking more downstate, but I don't know. But again, if they don't have turf, I don't think they're eligible. I think it has to be turf facilities, right? As far as I remember, state's always been played on turf simply because you don't want to tear up the grass for the team that yep. actually plays there, especially yep. if they're still in season, which has always been the case. Yeah. So who knows? I guess a lot to a lot to be figured out. I'm just curious. I hope we'll find out who put in bids and kind of what they end up going with. Cause I, I just I'm just fascinated by where it would end up and and who wants it and what they would do with it. So. Oh, definitely. And I mean, wherever it goes, it's still going to be a fun time. I think for the fans, it'll be excellent. I think if it does go to Bloomington, it's going to be great. May upset a couple Northern people that like to go to Northern, but outside of that, I don't think it'll be that big of a deal. Either way. It's only 45 minutes from DeKalb. It's only 45 minutes from Champaign. It's a great meet in the middle spot. Yep. Exactly. Well, Kyle, I think we broke it all down. We've dissected everything we can here. I appreciate you joining me on this uh, state championship, you know, and kind of season recap as we uh, kind of put a bow on the 2022 season, but we're not done yet. Kyle, I'm not done with you yet either. Last year we did our, our fantasy football draft, our view from the West fantasy draft. We compiled all the players and we each kind of picked our own team and uh, that was a lot of fun. I want to do that again. So if you're, if you're up for it, join us again in a few weeks and we'll do that again. I'm always up for it. Of course. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And then Mitch will join me. We'll, uh, we'll have to do our, um, our best from the West, our view from the West awards for the season. And uh, there'll be some interesting discussions in that. There always is. But I feel like this year there's a lot more, you know, discussion. There's not as many standout clear-cut favorites. So that will make for a great discussion. So thank you to everyone who listens. Thank you to Kyle for joining me. Kyle, as always, we went longer than I expected, but that's okay. If, If people are still listening, it's great conversation. So we have no time limits here, so we'll just keep going. So, uh anyway thanks thank yeah thanks for having me on i appreciate it all the times you guys have invited me to come on this year it's been great obviously the collaboration's a lot of fun got a lot of views out of it got a lot of clicks and you know obviously a lot of uh accolades and representation from people across the state thanking us for our coverage so kudos to you guys as well and uh thank you for having me on yep so always uh pay attention to nuicfootball.com follow along on twitter and on facebook Thank you to everyone who listens and uh, stay tuned. We got a lot more coming in the off season. We got, as we mentioned, a couple more fun episodes before we wrap up the year here. So uh, thank you so much. We'll see you next week. That'll do it for this week's episode of View from the West. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to go out to Apple Podcasts or Podbean and subscribe so you can follow along and downloads will come automatically every week. You can follow along on Twitter at ViewFromWestPod. You can also email me if you're interested in being a sponsor, ViewFromWestPod at gmail.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.